From the magnificent Midwest, this is the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you would like to make decisions based on facts rather than on rhetoric and cultural pressures, go to letsgetreallife.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and to increase your connection to humanity. That's letsgetreallife.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk with psychoanalyst Erica Komisar about the emotionally unavailable mother. But first, just one quick announcement. If you have not become a Patreon supporter yet, you're missing out. Not only are there three very economical levels, which means for a small price, you'll feel that much more invested and connected to this program, I'm now offering a free signed copy of the Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage, which is part memoir, since I talk a great deal in that book about the transformation in my own marriage to my husband, Bill. Plus, if you have a business you want to promote, there's even an option for that. All you have to do is go to thesuzannevenkershow.com and click on the Become a Patron button near the top of the page. Also, quick shout out to new subscriber, Carrie. Thank you, thank you, thank you for becoming a patron of The Suzanne Venker Show. Erica Komisar is a psychoanalyst and parent guidance expert who has been in private practice in New York City for 25 years. She's best known for her recent book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Based on more than two decades of clinical work and breakthrough neurobiological research on caregiving, attachment, and brain development, this book challenges the pervasive myths of infant resiliency and the concept of having it all. I'm going to read directly from Erica's website right now because I think just reading in her words exactly why she does what she does is very instructive. So let me take a moment to do that. She writes, Depression and anxiety take root in childhood which is why I see parents, mothers in particular, who are concerned about their children's mental health and emotional well-being. I believe in early intervention and guidance as a way to prevent early symptoms in children from developing into long-term mental disorders. My background is traditional, but my approach is empathic, warm, and related. I encourage self-awareness and reflection while helping my patients to make better choices and to take thoughtful actions in their lives. I've developed a series of workshops that teach parents how to raise emotionally healthy children by being as present emotionally and physically as possible from infancy through adolescence. Welcome to the show, or I should say welcome back to the show, Erica. Thank you so much for having me, Suzanne. It's so great to see you again or hear from you again, I should say. So in the opening, I read a little bit from your website where you sort of, you know, lay out what you're all about. And in there, I want to just repeat something that I already said earlier Mm -hmm. that you wrote. You said, I encourage self-awareness and reflection while helping my patients to make better choices and to take thoughtful actions in their lives. And I so, I mean, that just resonates with me because when you're talking about difficult decisions that need to be made, so often um, people do tend to be very deeply affected by what they're told to do, right? And what the people around them are doing, what the culture tells them they should do. And so much about your work is about eschewing that and saying, no, you need to be self-aware and reflect and listen to your inner spirit and what you're hearing your body tell you. 
Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's sort of the opposite of following cultural narratives. Would you agree with that? It is. It is. And, um, and, and I also think that there is a lot of focus in our culture on, um, you know, because we know in my field, there's a lot of focus on CBT and there's a lot of focus on thinking. Um, but what we don't really focus on is, uh, which is what reflection is, is thinking about feelings and thinking about experiences that have feelings attached to them. Um, so that's truly what reflection is. And we really, as a culture, we don't emphasize thinking about feelings. We just emphasize acting and acting impulsively and thinking. Love it. Important distinction. Okay, so I'm going to start by... Um, I'm going to read some quotes from an article that you wrote in 2017 when your first book being there Mm -hmm. came out. It was in the New York daily news. And it just, I just wrote down a series of things because it was just kind of encapsulated what your book is about. I'll start with this one as a psychoanalyst and parent guidance expert. I've seen society increasingly devalue mothering while idealize, excuse me, while idealizing work at the same time. I've seen an epidemic of troubled children who are being diagnosed and medicated earlier and earlier with ADHD, early aggression, and other behavioral and social disorders. Many people say the two phenomena are utterly unrelated. I believe they are connected. How so? Well, mothering is is important, not just emotionally for children, but also what we understand based on the research that we have now, the neuroscience research since the 90s um, and the most current neuroscience research is that, you know, mothers are biologically necessary to the right brain or social emotional brain development of children. So, so what we know is that mothers do these really important things for children in terms of their development. They regulate their emotions from the outside, meaning children aren't born with the ability to regulate emotions, meaning the ability to keep emotions from going too high or too low. And what we're seeing in society is, is a, an epidemic of children, adolescents, and adults with the inability to regulate their emotions. That's what anxiety and depression and ADHD are about, um, and also the extremes in aggression in children, which is also about regulation. So we know that there is an epidemic of, of children, adolescents, and adults with the inability to regulate emotion. So mothers from moment to moment soothe babies and thereby regulate their emotions in the first three years. And that's a really critical, critical function to create a foundation or what we say a platform of emotional security um, from which that child functions for the rest of their lives. We say that first early period of development casts a very long shadow on the rest of that child's life. The other thing that mothers do um, is they buffer children from stress. So our brains are not meant to be exposed to much stress in the first year and certainly not in the first three years. And even though we all experience some frustration and stress, it's supposed to be introduced to us very incrementally. So in other parts of the world, mothers wear babies on their bodies and they do this thing called skin to skin contact, which is they regulate a baby's emotions um, and buffer them from stress using their bodies. Um, and in this country, we not only separate our babies from our bodies too early, but we we actually leave. We go to work. We leave them with other people. We basically increase the stress in their brains and um, the opposite of buffering them from stress. We expose them to too much stress, which 
um, creates a problem in, in the baby's brain. The limbic system is meant to stay very quiet and diminutive, a little part of the brain called the amygdala, uh, which regulates stress for the rest of our lives, um, is, is meant to stay quiet. When it is, um, when it's exposed to stress too early, it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger until it burns out in a way, um, I'm oversimplifying, but it's the best way to describe it, sort of like a light bulb in your kitchen that you leave on too long, um, it burns out. And when that part of the brain uh, burns out, it, it then is effect ineffective in regulating stress going forward. So these two really important functions are what make us mentally healthy human beings. You know, I, I think I mentioned this when you were on last time. 20 years ago when I wrote my first book, essentially about this, the needs of children in the early years, I remember being struck by the the huge shift. I think you've written about this as well, being a um, wife in the working world without children and sort of completely career focused, obviously, because you didn't have children. And then you have children. And obviously, not only do your priorities shift, but there's this dramatic change in the way you have to live your life and even move, physically move through the day. And I remember being struck by how vast that change was. And I, I wrote in there that it's difficult for, for modern people to understand that they have to move at a snail's pace mm-hmm. in today's world, which is really difficult to do, let's face it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which comes down to the denial that having children changes your life. I mean, there is a sort of denial and it's we we teach it to our children and they teach it to their children now that somehow you can have a certain kind of life and a certain kind of lifestyle and then you can have children and it won't change anything <laughs> and in fact it changes everything so you know when um when when people come to me uh as patients or you know even even in interviews the first thing i say is having a baby is going to change your life for the rest of your life mm-hmm. to, as you say, it forces you. Uh, there's actually something called maternal preoccupation, which is a hormonal condition that new mothers have, which is their brains are kind of um, foggy for anything but the baby. Um, and it really is our biological way of focusing on the baby. And so, yeah, it slows us down having a baby and it, it changes everything. And of course, it can be a wonderful change. It's just that society doesn't, as you point out, and as I've pointed out, doesn't welcome it or encourage it. So there's this active denial, which is where you come in, I think, with your clients who are bucking against what they want to do, maybe biologically, and what they're told they should do. And they can't make sense of those two things. Yeah. And I mean, when I wrote the book, what I was hoping it would do, and I think it has done for many young women who are thinking about having babies or having babies is um, it's given them permission. I use the word permission because society doesn't give them permission mm-hmm. to listen to instinctual things. Um, it, it sort of says, you know, no, don't listen to instinctual things. Turn away from instinctual things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, go to work, make lots of money. Your baby will be just fine. You'll get over it. The baby will get over it. Uh, we do the same thing with sleep training. You know, I mean, the instinct is when your baby cries, particularly uh, mothers. There was a study that came out of England um, that 
where mothers and fathers both asleep when the baby cries, the mother jumps up to the baby's cries in the middle of the night, whereas the father sleeps through mm-hmm. the cry mm-hmm. almost every time. Uh, and interestingly, from an instinctual perspective, here's the rustling of the leaves outside. So the father is listening for predators and the mother is listening for the baby's distress. But the point being that, yeah, we are, uh, we're biologically attuned to our baby's distress. And we're told by society, we should let them cry when they're extremely vulnerable and their brains are very, very neurologically fragile. So yeah, society has really become about, um, I heard there's a famous rabbi who just died, uh, Lord Sachs, Rabbi Lord Sachs just, just passed away. And he was a great man and very wise. And talked a lot about the I versus the we in society and how we've become a very I-centered society, very self-centered, very narcissistic, very much about our own desires and our own needs. And that is contrary and counter to the well-being of children. And it's it's contrary to the well-being of intimate relationships. Um, you know, when we become a we, which is what happens when you have children or you, you marry or, you know, mm-hmm. you intimate partner, you know, you do sacrifice some of your, uh, you you lend your narcissism to another, you get it, mm-hmm. back, but you lend it to another, you lend it to your children. Um, and, and we do sacrifice to, to nurture, uh, but we get so much back. But yeah, it is this, this I, we self-sufficiency paradigm mm-hmm. society. Yeah. And it's much, it's just painful to me because there are most people need to be affirmed right from the society around them and they're just going to do a much better job when they're encouraged and supported and since they're not that's in my opinion why you have so many people they just do the opposite of what we opened with this talking about which is instead of being self-reflective just going along with what they think everyone else is doing because because it's easier quite frankly yeah, um, yeah, a lot harder to do the work that you that you do with people. Well, to say that it isn't just about I wish I wish it was just society that wasn't giving uh, women permission to to be with their children when they're young. It's also their spouses. I mean, if we say that um, if you don't address these issues, uh, you know, before you get married, then you know, you don't really know who you're marrying. And if you say to someone you're you're potentially marrying, you know, I nurturing is very important to me. Family is very important to me. I have children someday. And when I do have children, you know, at least in those early years, I want to titrate or regulate my work or maybe not work. I mean, I'll see how I feel, but you have to know that that's going to be a priority for me. And then if the young man or whoever you're marrying says, you know, well, that's not going to work for me. I mean, that should tell you something. Bingo. Absolutely. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I've said it over and over. It's just, it's just an easy way to sort of uh, ward off disaster down the road. Just yeah. find out if you're on the same page on that subject. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, presumably you'd know throughout the dating process, I would think, but 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 yeah, absolutely state it outright. Um, okay. So I want to get to a few actually, let me jump ahead just a bit to talk about guilt for a second, just because you were bringing up um how hormonally it's different for women because I think a lot of women don't understand and I've certainly read them say, "Well, why why don't men feel guilty?" right? Um could you explain a little bit about the difference there? Well, the first thing I would say is that 
guilt is not necessarily, and I've said this many times um, in my book, that guilt is not necessarily a, a bad thing. It is our conscience that is working. Um, it is the part of our ego that um, helps us to determine what feels right and what feels wrong, what feels good and what feels bad in relationships. Um, and it, it really is a very important functioning part mm-hmm. of the ego. So we actually don't want to tell women to ignore or men if they feel it, but we don't mm-hmm. want parents to ignore guilt. We want to tell them that it's a time, as you said in the beginning of this interview, to think about and reflect on and be thoughtful about what it is that you feel conflicted about. So guilt is conflict. And, you know, human beings cannot live chronically in a state of conflict because it causes them too much stress. But it's sort of the alarm bell ringing, if you will, that there's a fire in the house. (laughs) And you wouldn't say, oh, just ignore the fire. You'd say, oh, my my goodness, let's figure out what to do about it. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, guilt is a very important emotion. Um, and, and I, I think that we, as women don't really understand that when we feel guilty, it's our instincts kicking, mm-hmm. in. it's our hormones kicking in. Um, women produce something called oxytocin in great amounts. If, if they're, if they've had a healthy relationship with their own mothers and, or they've been in treatment, if they haven't had a healthy relationship, me- meaning if someone is emotionally healthy, if a woman is emotionally healthy, she will produce something called oxytocin, um, when she nurtures her baby and the baby will produce it in turn. So it is sort of this reciprocal passing back and forth, um, this wonderful love hormone called oxytocin, and it helps us to bond to our babies and attach to our babies. So if we're attached to our babies and we leave them, it is natural and healthy mm-hmm. to feel guilty. Um, fathers don't produce as much oxytocin. They produce something called vasopressin in great amounts, um, which is connected more to testosterone. Um, and women do produce vasopressin because women also produce testosterone. Um, but men produce more vasopressin and it's what we call the protective aggressive hormone. But that they do not feel the same level of pull to the baby and the baby's distress in the same way. Instead, they feel a pull to protect the family from harm. Um, it's a different instinctual response. But yeah, guilt is part of women's instinctual response to not leave their babies when their babies are most vulnerable. Okay, and in, in keeping with that same theme, explain what a new mom's occasional boredom really means mm-hmm. versus the message again. Here's what I don't like about it. Again, the culture's messages, this idea that, well, that's fine if you like staying home with babies and that's your thing, but I, I can't do that. You know, or I, it's as if the people who do that uh, are, are um, I don't know, cut out for, for that exclusively in their lives and have no other interests. And so that's why they do it. When in fact, that's, that's not really accurate. No, it isn't accurate. So w- when we attach to our babies, um, we we feel an incredible preoccupation. I'll call it a preoccupation with them. Preoccupation is connected to interest. We feel both interest and preoccupation with our babies. When we don't form a healthy attachment to our babies, we don't uh, feel that preoccupation with them in the same way. And we don't 
have, we don't share the same kind, that same intensity of interest in our babies. So it is uh, quite instinctually normal to not feel attached to someone else's baby because it's not your baby and you haven't bonded with that baby. Um, and in that way, feeling bored or disinterested because boredom is a sign of disinterest or depression. So we say that, you know, if you are feeling bored with someone else's baby, that is instinctually correct. But if you're feeling bored being with your own very young baby, we say that's usually a sign of postpartum depression, um, which which means that something didn't happen there, uh, both hormonally and emotionally, that probably should have happened between you and your baby. And that is usually, we think about that as being generationally passed down. So it probably didn't happen between you and your mother and therefore is not happened between you and your baby. The good news is postpartum depression and attachment can be treated if it's recognized instead of, again, as you said, Suzanne, if society tells you that being bored with your own baby is normal, uh, I, would say it, I would put it this way. Every important and meaningful kind of relationship and work has boring moments. Mm -hmm. But if you are pervasively bored, being with your baby, then we know you haven't fully in a healthy way attached to that baby. And that can be treated. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read one more thing from this article, and then I want to get to the meat of this program about the emotionally unavailable mother, when all of these things that we're talking about don't happen. Real quick, you wrote, just very simply, with parent, quote, with parenting and young children, more is more. The more emotionally and physically a mother can be present for a child in the first three years, the better the chance that child will be emotionally healthy and mentally well. And that, and of course I agree with that, that blows the theory of quality time versus quantity time. <laughs> that, that the idea that if you just spend, you know, an intense hour a day, that's really, really good. It, you know, all those other hours of the day don't matter. I mean, that's a, it's basically what we call a projection. So it's, it's adults projecting onto babies, adult characteristics. It's a, a word I sort of made up, which is, I think, I don't think anybody else uses it, adult amorphizing, which is projecting onto babies, adult abilities and characteristics, right? I think that happens all the time. Yeah. So, and babies are not adults. They don't have the same capacity to hold uh, their their needs until the end of the day. Let's say so. You know, um, you know, it's babies are treated almost like objects in that in that sense. You know, that you can see them in the morning and you know play with them a little and feed them and leave them all day and like a vase on the on the dining room table mm -hmm. and come back and you can pick it up and you can like a pet like a pet but even pets need <laughs> right exactly even pets need more than that i love dogs if you have a puppy you you're not supposed to leave a puppy no first year for the same reason for very long um somehow we're more sympathetic to that in this culture go figure yeah no it's true but uh the the idea is that um, it's that moment to moment meeting a child's distress with sensitive empathic nurturing, meaning soothing your baby from moment to moment is what actually re regulates their emotions from the outside. They can only internalize that ability to regulate their own emotions if they get that moment to moment regulation from you in the first three years. 
So it's really kind of emotionally logical, if you will. It, the problem is, again, if you project onto a baby that they're not fragile, that they're not emotionally and neurologically fragile, which is what we do in society when we say daycare is fine or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. moving your baby with just anybody or mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're projecting onto that baby that they're not vulnerable. We're projecting onto them that they're self-sufficient, that they're like us. Uh, they are not like you. They are incredibly fragile and and vulnerable, um, both emotionally and neurologically. And that's what that is the problem with that paradigm. Gosh, Erica, just imagine if that was considered the norm in our culture. That was understood by most people and was the norm. How different our lives would be, people's children's lives would be, families' lives would be, marriages, families would be. Yeah. Okay, so having laid that groundwork as to um, those, not just those earlier years, but we can even talk about later years. Um, in fact, why don't we pause for a moment and do that? Because you have a new book coming out that does the same thing as your first, but shifts over to, I believe, adolescence. So why don't you tell people about that? Yes, so the book is coming out in September. Um, it's it's basically a book about uh, the fact that there are two critical windows of brain development where parents, the what we say the environment is very influential. And we are the environment as parents. So where parents have another opportunity, if they miss the first opportunity from zero to three, or, you know, maybe they feel there were certain things they could have done better, um, nine to 25, which is what we understand adolescents to be based on the, the neuroscience research now, nine to 25 is another window of opportunity when the adolescent's brain is, um, what we say is it's pruning. There's a lot of growth before adolescence. And then in adolescence, it's pruning, meaning cutting back the parts we don't need. And, um, and it's also reorganizing. Um, and these are very important functions, but what it does is it creates another opportunity where the environment is very, very influential on that uh, human being's ability to regulate their emotions in the future and also to to deal with stress. So um, even though as parents, we feel that our job is sort of, I don't want to say done, but, you know, your kids Mm -hmm. get adolescents Mm -hmm. and they don't seem to need you and they seem to tell you, you know, go away. I don't need you. I'm self-sufficient. And if you buy into that and you go back to work with a more than full-time job or you mm-hmm. start traveling for work or you're not around or you start going out to dinner three times a week with your partner or, you know. Um, and Basically just absent. Absent, right. They don't need me, right? Right. Um, you start doing that. But in fact, they need you. They just need you in a different way. So it's not a moment-to-moment process as it is in zero to three. But what it is, is it's when they need you, they need you. So I use an analogy in the book of being a parent to being an emotionally present parent to an adolescent means that when their door opens, whenever it opens, um, because it doesn't open often, but when their bedroom door opens and you are there, they'll turn to you. But if you're not there, then they won't. And the defenses go back up. So I say it's sort of the revolving door, like jump rope. You have to wait for the next time the door opens. <laughs> Erica, I'm laughing because my husband and I are dealing with this as we speak, where fortunately my son's door, our son's door is open all the time. It's never closed. That's nice. But he definitely spends a lot of time there when he's not at work and at school. And so if you want to have a conversation with him, we literally respectively go sit in the chair 
and just sort of sit there. We don't even have to say anything. And eventually he'll turn around and start talking. But if we wait for him to come out into our space, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, I tell parents, actually, one of the best things you can do is just be around. So when they do open up, you're there because if not there, then they'll just close up again. Um, And we don't want their feelings to submerge sort of like a submarine, because if it's if those feelings of distress submerge, um, then they often come out later, more intensely or in a harder to address uh, manner. So we, we, as much as possible, and we can't be there all the time. That's the truth. As parents of young children and as parents of teenagers, we can't be there all the time. But I'm going to say, same thing as I said with younger children, the more you're there, uh, the more you can address that distress when in in real time. But Yeah. yeah, more is more. Yeah, more is more. Okay, so looking at the whole child then from zero to 18, Mm-hmm. or even 25, as you're arguing in your new book. Um, although if they're gone away from the home, I guess it's a little different. I don't know if you cover that in the book, but that's okay. I want to talk about what happens pretty much from birth to 18. When you have a child whose mother is emotionally unavailable, and we know there are different ways that a mother can be emotionally unavailable. I know that when your book came out, the media wanted this to be about, you know, you're saying that you either stay home or you work or you don't. And that that's, you know, they simplified a, a very complicated point. That wasn't the point. It is definitely true that if you work full time and you're around all the time you have children, then you are not going to be available. You're not either emotionally or physically. So that's true. But there's this other huge middle ground. And you can also be home with your kids and still be emotionally unavailable. So I've listed a couple of things I'd like you to speak to that I thought of, and you can add anything that you would like um, that came to mind for me. Okay. The first one is um, being, and I think of like old parenting, uh, like what do you call this? I guess uh, like Victorian days, maybe where you're cold or closed off to conversation Mm -hmm. and to being, you're just cold versus being warm and open. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's an example? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, you know, we learn this generationally, if our own parents, if our own mothers uh, were not emotionally available, were uh, distracted or emotionally repressed or emotionally detached or or depressed. I mean, you know, there's a lot of depression uh, and there was a lot of depression in previous generations that gets passed down generationally. So that basically, um, you know, is a barrier to connection. And so when you have that happen to you, uh, then that gets passed down to your baby. And that is, yeah, you can be there physically. That's what I say in the book. You can be there mm-hmm. physically uh, and not be there emotionally. Um, and that often happens. And do you, so how do I phrase this? The, what separates the person who can break away from that, in your opinion, and the ones who just repeat the pattern? You know, there's self-awareness and pain. So I, for the most part, people don't seek help unless their issues cause them pain. Um, you know, if, if their defenses are working and they don't feel anything, discomfort, distress, pain from their behavior, um, then they generally don't go and seek out help and change anything. So, you know, what you hope is that there's something along the way that may have caused that mother pain um, or an awareness of her own pain from childhood. It's why therapy is so extraordinary, uh, because what it does is it helps you to 
you know, really look at that pain and, and break the cycle. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, that's such a tough thing. If you had a, you know, if you were raised by a detached, let's use the word attached. I think that's pretty good too. detached. Um, then you're acquiring those, I don't know. It's not a skill. I don't know. You're, you, you adopt that, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to pass that on generationally, as you say. Mm -hmm. And if you're not naturally softer or warmer or what have you, then you'd have to seek it out and really shift the way you exist, move through the world. Yes. Yeah. So there are, you know, as you know, there are different kinds of attachment disorders. So the way we think about it is, um, and it's, it's what's called an avoidant attachment disorder. Um, when your own mother could not connect emotionally, uh, you tend to then develop defenses as a baby where you turn away from your mother, like she probably, like your mother turned away from her mother and her mother turned away from her mother. Um, you know, in a way, it's what we call a strategy. Babies develop a strategy to cope with uh, a mother who cannot attach emotionally, cannot connect emotionally, cannot feel the joy mm -hmm. of that connection emotionally. And so that, you know, creates this kind of attachment disorder, which is then passed down to the next generation. I can't tell you how many of my uh, young patients today in their 30s are coming in with very serious attachment disorders that interfere with being able to relate to another human being, whether it's an adult and particularly if it's a child of their own. So yeah, the, it's what we call generational expression. Um, yeah. And I, and do you think there's any difference between say a hundred years ago when you had that mentality of children being out of sight or what, you, what is that? Uh, um, uh, um, seen, but not heard. That's what I'm yeah. thinking of. Yeah. Not heard. Yeah. So that's very cold. And then we don't have that today, but we do have, parents who are very easily distracted and very uh, moving through their days so quickly on their phones, just not really present in the moment. I wonder how much of that, the, the effects are the same. Well, interestingly, you said Victorian model was children were to be seen and not heard. Uh, today, parents are often seen and not heard. So it's kind of very similar in, in yeah. a way, you know, parents are on their, as you say, technology on their computers, on their phones, um, preoccupied with themselves and their work, um, anxious about it mm -hmm. and, so, and distracted by it. So it's, it's very hard to be emotionally present for a child if you are, um, if you're distracted in some way uh, or preoccupied with yourself or worries about yourself. So again, you know, as I said, there's a lot of adults walking around with attachment disorders that, that make it impossible for them to really deeply connect with another human being. Um, I remember when I was in my twenties and now I'm in my fifties. Um, and I guess it was the eighties, uh, when I was in my twenties and it was, um, it was really a me, me, me era. And I found it very disturbing as a person in my twenties. I think it's one of the things that set me social work school and to become a psychoanalyst because I was so disturbed by the inability of people to connect with one another deeply um, and, and really be intimate with one another. And it's just gotten worse since then. Oh, yeah. yeah. Much worse. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. What about the alcoholic mother? 
So the alcoholic mother, yeah, so that would be the depressed mother. And, you know, again, this isn't about indicting mothers. It's not about blaming mothers. It's about understanding where our own neuroses comes from. It's about self-awareness. And the only way we we break the pattern, um, we break the cycle, is if we are aware what has happened to us. And um, alcoholism is a symptom. People like to call alcoholism a disease. I know. Um, but it is actually a, a symptom of depression, for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're talking about a mother who, uh, you know, for no reason that is intentional, uh, is suffering with depression and addiction is a way to self-soothe with that depression. And if you're depressed, it's very, very challenging to connect with another human being. I mean, you could say you're so deeply in your sorrow and in your rage that connecting with another human being or being responsible for another human being is nearly impossible. Um, And it's so important if you sense that you might even have mild depression that doesn't even go as far as alcoholism, let's say postpartum depression, that you get help with it um, because it has extremely damaging effects on emotionally and neurologically on children. And of course, depression can take different forms, right? So you could be depressed and not not turn to alcohol. So I'm thinking of uh, a couple more examples I wrote down were that have to do with divorce. Right. And one of the things I wrote was, well, there's two different things about divorce that came to mind. One is um, when you divorce and remarry, then the mother often shifts her attention to her new relationship. Mm -hmm. And that can be very jarring, obviously, and very destructive for the child because you're no longer emotionally available to him or her as you are to this new person. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is where you might go into a depression, who a mother who sinks into depression, let's say after her husband leaves and never remarries, but can't really cope, and therefore doesn't have the ability to just like you were describing to to give because you're so, uh, you know, into your what's happening with you emotionally yourself. Well, so if you think about what depression is, it's preoccupation over past losses. And so you're basically talking about a mother. Who Wait, hold on. Can you say that again? Oh, sure. So, so the definition of depression is really preoccupation over past losses. We say anxiety is preoccupation over future losses that may never happen. But depression is preoccupation over past losses. And, and so if you think about... Um, you know, if someone is preoccupied with loss, um, they're not actually even necessarily in the present, right? So, yeah. yeah, the concept that to be with a baby, to be emotionally present for a child, you have to, or anyone, I mean, for another adult to be present, you have to be in the present, yeah? Um, and when you are depressed, you are preoccupied with past losses. You are living them over and over and over again. Um, Some conflict and um, lack of resolution uh, over that loss, you never moved on from that loss. Um, And, you know, much of the treatment over those addictions is about um, helping you to really look at past losses and resolve old losses and conflicts that you never that you never resolved. Um, so yeah, so you cannot be present for a child if you are preoccupied with loss. No. Mm-hmm. And then what's really unfortunate is that those children 
of divorce in situations like that, whether, well, divorce maybe is related or not to the depression. That was just one thought I had. Um, learn to, well, a couple things. I've had some clients who had to go into uh, mother mode with their siblings, right? Because the mother wasn't there. I mean, was physically there, but was not emotionally available. So they took on a mother role when they shouldn't have done that. And that's still with them 20 years later and others who stuffed their feelings inside or learned to do that. So they didn't upset the apple cart. They didn't want their mom any more upset. So they just swallowed all of their own needs. And then these, these are things that, as you point out, these, these, these things stay with you for life and they continue into your future relationships. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd say it creates a feeling of abandonment and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, and that gets passed down to the next generation. That that feeling um, that you were never allowed to be a child who who could depend on, um, you know, again, like self sufficiency. You know, dependency in our culture is such a bad word, and it is such a good thing to have become such a bad word um, because we need to feel we can be dependent on our caregivers when we're when we're vulnerable and when we're young and uh, a child of a depressed mother or an ill mother, you know, some mothers, again, by no, uh, how should I say, fault of their own may, may get an illness or cancer. You know, we know that there's a lot of mothers who develop different kinds of cancer and, you know, I mean, children, you know, it's not a logical thing, um, but they will feel left by you mm-hmm. um, because you're not focusing on them. You're focusing on yourself. I mean, you could say that depression by no fault of your own is really self preoccupation. You really can't focus on another when you're, when you're really right. absorbed in that loss. And if you're an alcoholic, you know, clearly alcohol also, um, you know, has, basically impacts personality and has all kinds of personality changes connected to it. So yeah, the abandonment issue is what's passed down to the next generation. And if you're forced to be a parentified child, as in the case of a child of of an alcoholic, um, you never had a childhood yourself. Yeah. So it's very hard then with the next generation to know how to give your child a childhood. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. So all of these things, um, as we pointed out, that that we just talked about are not related to um, 
being physically present or not. But then, of course, there is also the absentee mother who's just simply not around. What's what? Even if it, I mean, most of the time that's due to work. But um, I suppose there are other ways that could be. But how, what is the connection between, say, having you physically present and emotionally unavailable and physically absent? Which is also emotionally unavailable, but in a different way, right? Or I hate to say one better than another because they both suck. So I don't know if there's a way to really say one better than another. But I will say that um, attachment is a bodily process. So even mothers who are, you know, who are emotionally distracted or uh, depressed or, you know, maybe absent, but physically there you know, a child still has your body to touch, to come to, Um, you know, there's still a physical presence of a mother there. And clearly, it's going to leave scars on that child if they don't also have that mother's attention, that mother's emotional presence, that mother's interest in them, and ability to connect with them. Um, But it's still better to be there physically than not there physically. Um, I suppose you could use the analogy that it is better to have a physically and emotionally present caregiver if you're really ill. Um, And some people will often ask me that, isn't it better to have a primary caretaker who can both physically and emotionally be there? And I would say, yes. Um, In the case of a mother who is really emotionally or mentally ill, Mm -hmm. um, you you want someone to be there physically and emotionally. So it's not... um, you know, we'd say it's not a good paradigm to say, you know, one or the other. You really, you have to be there both physically and emotionally for that child. Are you, what have you seen in the last, I don't know, eight months, I guess, Erica, with COVID and people's relationships? I've seen, it's dichotomous. It's really interesting. Um, if you went into this COVID-19 um, crisis, with healthy relationships, then it strengthened those relationships. If you went in with family or loved ones that you live with, where there was a very good foundation of connection and love, then it's actually strengthened those bonds. But if you went into it in a relationship with your partner or your children, and there was already stress, it's put more stress on the relationships. Um, so you, I guess you could say that things that were good got better and things that were bad got worse. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So couples who were struggling before or parents who are struggling with their children are struggling more with those relationships. Couples are getting divorced in, uh, you know, sort of at very high rates. Um, Parents are calling people like me and me for parent guidance. Uh, You know, um, there's been a huge uptick of people seeking help with their children. So, but then you have the opposite, which is you have mothers who have not had to go into an office, who have very young babies, who are feeling guilty about leaving them, who are loving being home with their babies, even if they have to feel stressed by squeezing their work in, they still physically, they can breastfeed, they can be there, they can feed their child, they can play with their child in between. Um, you know, you have that situation, which is so much better. And then you also have, um, you know, parents are home together and fathers are getting to play with their children in the middle of the day. They're getting to feed their children. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, I would a lot of good, a lot of good too. Yeah. Yeah. Not all bad. 
No, not all bad. It's sort of like the COVID situation overall. Some people are suffering more economically and some people are doing really well. It makes you feel sort of, I've had people who just don't want to say that they're doing really well because they feel guilty about it. Um, so it's it's got all kinds of effects on on people. Yeah. Uh, well, this has just been, I don't know if I missed anything there that you thought of um, on as, as an example of being emotionally available. Did I hit them all? I mean, you did, you, you know, again, I just wanted to say something about distraction. So because I think, as you say, you can be physically there and not be emotionally there. And, you know, one of the old fashioned paradigms of mothering was the mother who was on the PTA and drove kids to soccer and cooked great meals and cleaned the house spotlessly and, you know, organized her child's life. And that's still a paradigm today. Um, but interestingly, you can be that mother who always has the right snack in your stroller, uh, who, you know, always has good food in the house, who keeps the house really clean, who's, you know, very organized. Um, you can be that mother and focus so much on other environmental things for that child that you forget to focus on the child. And so what's interesting is that's why I say, you know, it's, it really isn't a, um, a working versus non-working paradigm. It is you need to think about how, how much you actually emotionally connect with your child or whether you're using things like housework and cooking and organizing um, as a way to escape interacting with your child. Mm. And there's the self-awareness that we talked about at the beginning. Um, you know, sort of engagement versus just existing, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, you know, we tend to think of being a good mother as the confidence of organization, uh, which is a piece of mothering, but it's actually not the piece that necessarily helps children to become emotionally secure or resilient to stress uh, or to regulate their emotions. So the idea is to be as present emotionally as you can, um, to be interested in your children's emotions. And that means sometimes saying you're going to have spaghetti with jarred sauce for dinner or the house is going to be messy yeah. or, uh, or there aren't a million activities for your children that you pull out the paints and the art supplies and the games and you watch movies and snuggle. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's not always the complicated organizationally complicated things that make us good mothers. Sometimes it's the simplicity. And as you say, the slowness and the simplicity uh, that makes us really good mothers. And to welcome those those years, which are so, oh my gosh, they come and go so quickly during those years when everything does completely feel like it comes to a halt, right? Yeah. It's, and there's so many good things that can come from that. That may be the only time in your life, those five years or whatever, where you are going to function a, a, on that slower pace level. And, and, and you might love it. You know, there's things that you will learn and, and it's forcing you to learn yeah. when you forced to live that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I do think that sometimes mothers, I think mothers are really afraid to see babies as vulnerable um, because the reality is that if you weren't allowed to be vulnerable with your mother, um, first of all, you don't know what that's like because you have defenses against vulnerability, but it's hard to see your baby as vulnerable as well because at some point, your baby will leave you. That's what we want, right? We mm -hmm. connect with them, we attach with them, and then they separate and they grow up and they, they still are interdependent with us forever. If we've, if we've raised them in an emotionally healthy and attached manner, 
they'll separate but still be connected to us. Um, but they do leave us. And, you know, so there is something that I think I see in a lot of my young patients, which is they're reticent to really give it their all emotionally uh, for fear that they'll be left by their babies. So it's some deeply psychological fear of abandonment by their babies that keeps them ever from opening up and being vulnerable with their babies. That makes sense. It does make sense. And I can say the same about people's marriages these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, relationships are relationships, right? Well, when people go into marriages today with um, prenups, which is already, you know, if you think about what a prenup is, I mean, mm-hmm. the practicality, but what it basically says in modern culture is uh, we're, we're, you know, we're going to put in the clause. So when we break up. <laughs> Absolutely. No question. I mean, talk about, uh, yeah. Uh, what do you call that? Uh, um, what's that phrase that means if you create it, it's going to happen? Oh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, we we're all about loss in our culture. So and yeah. and if we're all about loss, then we're all about independence. Because if you're independent, no one can hurt you, right? Bingo, yeah. bingo. Yeah. There you go. Oh my gosh, this has been great, Eric. I love talking to you. Yeah, too. and I know people are going to love this too because um, I even had people back when you were on last year say you have to have her on again. So I just did. <laughs> Thank you for having me on again. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Bye. And now for the email of the day. This is from Nicole. Dear Suzanne, I'm a married mother of two, and I want to tell you what a hugely positive effect your work has had on my life since I first discovered it several months ago. Thanks to your eye-opening advice, my husband and I are moving towards an intimacy and connection we have never known before in our early, excuse me, in our nearly 18 years together. And not only is my marriage and family improving dramatically, but in considering your points about the differences between men and women, I've had several little aha moments about other relationships and situations in my past, as well as the relationship between my parents and even my grandparents. So much of my world is making sense now, thanks to you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, Suzanne, for all your hard and honest work. I know from experience it's not easy going against the culture, but you are making a real difference in people's lives. Wishing you and your family all the best, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. I just wanted to read that. I know sometimes I only answer questions, but um, I do get a lot of those and and I don't share them nearly enough. So uh, I thought I would do that. Thank you very much, Nicole. Appreciate that. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk about the death of dating in American culture. Finally, don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Venker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. <laughs>